0: There is a fine line between genius and insanity. I have erased this line. Oscar Levant Hello everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the series. Here's a philosophical question for you to ponder. Let's imagine arch-conspiracy theorist David Icke inserted the following sentence into the front of each of his books. The following is, in its entirety, a work of fiction. How would this change your view of him? Is it possible he could then be considered a literary genius, one who has woven Gnostic philosophy together with political satire to create a profound commentary on the nature of human society? Would he have created an alternative fictional world from where we could better understand this one? And if any of this is so, does it seem strange to you that simply re a work can shift the author from crank to genius? Is it strange that one little sentence in a book running for hundreds of pages should make such a difference? I appreciate genius is subjective, And you might believe David Icke's writings are just not that good, irrespective of how they're categorised. But go with me a little bit here. Even if you think the inclusion of the sentence would only move him into the category of moderately good fiction writer, it still would make a difference as to how you view him, especially if you currently think he's a crank. David Icke, of course, contends his work belongs squarely in the non fiction section he's not blurring any lines in his own mind. With other authors, it's not so clear. The famous science fiction writer Philip K. Dick claimed that he wrote his dystopian fantasy The Man in the High Castle from memory. Dick really believed he recalled an alternative reality when Nazis won the Second World War and occupied the United States of America. Let's listen.
1: Does any one of us remember, in any dim fashion, a worse earth circa 1977 than this? Have our young men seen visions and our old men dreamed dreams? Nightmare dreams, specifically, about a world of enslavement and evil, of prisons and jailers, and ubiquitous police? I have. I wrote out these dreams in novel after novel, story after story, To name two in which this prior ugly present obtained most clearly, I cite The Man in the High Castle and my 1974 novel about the U.S. as a police state called Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. I'm going to be very candid with you. I wrote both novels based on fragmentary residual memories of such a horrid slave state world, or perhaps the term world is the wrong one and I should say United States since in both novels I was writing about my own country. I can even tell you what caused me to remember. In late February of 1974, I was given sodium pentothal for the extraction of impacted wisdom teeth. Later that day, back home again, but still deeply under the influence of the sodium pentothal, I had a short, acute flash of recovered memory. In one instant, I caught it all, but immediately rejected it. Rejected it, however, with the realization that what I had retrieved in the way of buried memories was authentic. Then, in mid-March, the total body of memories, intact and entire, began to return. You are free to believe me or to disbelieve, but please take my word on it that I am not joking. This is very serious, a matter of importance. I am sure that at the very least you will agree that for me, even to claim this, is in itself amazing. People claim to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, very different, present life.
0: It seems to me there are various ways of looking at Philip Dick's claim. The first is that it could be literally true. Such alternative timelines really exist, and Dick recalls lives lived in them. The second possibility, is that Dick's imagination is so powerful it overwhelms the already porous line dividing it from memory. Indeed, it's not hard to see how this could be a positive attribute for a writer of fiction. The third, and one I find personally most interesting, is to recognise that Dick's memories could be not literally, but symbolically true. It could be said there is a sense in which Nazis did take over the United States after the Second World War, with the rise of the ideology of the national security state. And just in case you think I'm engaging in hyperbole here, let's take a couple of examples. How about human radiation experiments?
2: The Marshall Islands lie in the vast Pacific Ocean between the United States and Asia. People here sustained themselves for thousands of years with abundant fish, breadfruit, and coconuts. All that changed in 1946, when the United States took over the Marshall Islands as a trust territory. A nightmare began. The islands were turned into a laboratory for the testing of nuclear weapons and the people into guinea pigs. Some of our people were injected with or coerced to drink fluids laced with radiation. Other experimentation involved the purposeful and premature resettlement of people on islands highly contaminated by weapons tests to study how human beings absorb radiation from their foods and environment. The secret of the Marshall Islands is Project 4.1. Declassified documents reveal a scientific program that began as a study of mice and became a study of human beings exposed to radiation.
1: We have hundreds of women who have miscarriages. We have leukemia cancers. We have thyroid cancers. We have stillbirth babies. We have babies we call jellyfish babies. A baby is born on a labor table and it moves up and down like this. It's a colorful, ugly thing. It does not shape like a human being. It moves up and down like this on a labor table because that thing is breathing. That is a baby.
0: How about the use
2: of death squads? The school of the Americas became an essential force for the empire to prevent the people of Latin America from deciding the future of Latin America. So it went to work churning out thousands of puppets and proxies to do its bidding. Since 1946, over 64,000 officers, cadets, and non-commissioned officers have graduated from the SOA from 23 countries across Latin America and the Caribbean. Many went on to lead the military units that will go down in history as the most heinous, far right-wing death squads of our time. Training manuals used at the school, declassified after relentless grassroots pressure, showed they officially trained horrific tactics like torture, blackmail, extortion, execution of detainees, and the targeting of civilian populations.
0: I could have played clips about the mind control program, the surveillance grid, and the millions dead in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. But I think you get the point. The visual image of a swastika flying over Washington DC brings this into consciousness in a tangible way. It makes visible the often unseen empire. In his novel, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, Dick writes about the dimension-shifting process. He only got the full feeling he was writing from memory after the novel's publication.
1: It was in February of 1974 that my blocked-off memories of Track A returned, and it was in February of 1974 that my novel, Flow My Tears, the Policeman Said, was released finally after two, de- two years' delay. It was almost as if the release of the novel, which had been delayed so long, meant that in a certain sense it was all right for me to remember. That is, to remember that the book was not fiction. The book was based on subliminal memories which I had of such a world. But perhaps until the book was actually released, it was better that I did not remember. Why that would be, I do not know. But I have the impression that the memories were not to come to the surface until the material had been published very sincerely on the author's part as what he believed to be fiction. Perhaps had I known, I would have been too frightened to write the novel. As it was, I was very frightened anyway. There was something about the novel that frightened me a great deal. Or perhaps I would have just shot off my mouth and told everybody and somehow interfered with the effectiveness of that book and such other books of mine as Man in the High Castle, which were also based on residual memories. The effectiveness of those novels might have been impaired.
0: I find it fascinating that Dick realized his perception of where his novels came from, fantasy or memory, would change their impact. He believes their effectiveness might have been impaired had their origin been widely known. This may be so. However, their effect could equally have been, in some ways, enhanced. The contention that his stories are real changes the experience for the reader. It makes them edgier, a little bit scary. They no longer exist at the safe distance of being just a story. Indeed, Dick talks of finding his novel, Flow My Tears The Policeman Said, frightening. He'd really been there, fighting that police state. This brings me on to what I want to address. There is great power in this literalism in conflating the mythic and physical realms. It profoundly changes the way any piece of art is viewed. To explore this, let's take a quote making the opposite point from the famous mythologist Joseph Campbell. Wherever the poetry of myth is interpreted as biography, history, or science, it is killed. The living images become only remote facts of a distant time or sky, Furthermore, it is never difficult to demonstrate that as science and history, mythology is absurd. When a civilization begins to interpret its mythology in this way, the life goes out of it. Temples become museums, and the link between the two perspectives dissolves. And that's a quote taken from The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell's most famous work. Now... I am someone who has truly believed in the correctness of this position, being inclined towards the symbolic as I am. And from the perspective I occupy, it is indeed true. Taking myths literally is like watching Sesame Street without knowing there's a thing called mathematics. You could only understand it as a literal story featuring characters called four and nine. However, it has become clear to me that, From another perspective, Joseph Campbell is clearly, utterly wrong. Completely and totally so. Far from being killed, myths take on an immense power when they are interpreted literally. Campbell goes on to say, Such a blight has certainly descended on the Bible and on a great part of the Christian cult. Well, if you think about it, Christianity has two billion adherents and has survived for 2,000 years. It has persisted through the rise and fall of empires, scientific theories, and even weathered the criticisms of Richard Dawkins. Where's the blight? I'm being facetious, of course. I know where the blight is. From the mythic perspective, Christianity lost much of its inner meaning through going literal. It seems like a sacrifice. When you kill the essence of a myth this way, Far from dying, it releases immense power to act in the world, albeit in a modified form. All the major long-standing world religions made this sacrifice to some degree. They exchanged essence for manifestation, the spiritual for the temporal. I think it's hard to do this nowadays, and is usually the preserve of cranks and conmen who are looking to start cults. I would suggest this is the case with Scientology where science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard grafted a cosmic narrative involving a tyrannical dictator of a galactic confederacy onto his Dianetics process. By contrast, George Lucas never presented Star Wars as anything but fiction. He never claimed to be in communication with the spirit of Master Yoda. He did acknowledge the saga contains archetypal, personal and political truths, indeed, ones that he drew from Joseph Campbell's concept of a hero's journey. We can only ponder as to what the effect would have been if Lucas had presented Star Wars as an historical documentary. My guesses would be, Lucas would have been widely condemned as a lunatic, the films would not have had nearly the same level of wide-reaching cultural impact, a small number of people would have become captivated by the power of the archetypal themes and not understanding where this power was coming from, they would conclude Lucas was telling the truth and was indeed in contact with Master Yoda. For those people, the transformational power of the films may have been greatly enhanced. I will also throw into the mix the tiny possibility of widespread acceptance of Lucas's claims, and Star Wars transitioning to become a major world religion, in which case people suggesting deeper archetypal themes would be at risk of persecution from those holding to a strictly literal interpretation. No such claims have been forthcoming, however, and Star Wars is set to remain in the realm of fiction. The Man in the High Castle, whilst presented as history, still exists at the relatively safe distance of an alternative reality. By contrast, David Icke's shape-shifting reptilians are much more confronting. They live alongside us, appearing on the nightly news. In human disguise, of course. Another interesting contrast exists between Scientology and Ikeology. It's widely believed that L. Ron Hubbard was, at his core, a con-man, who set up a religion in order to get rich and satisfy whatever other psychological desires were at play. Given the nefarious manner in which Scientology has played out, this would certainly make sense. By contrast, David Icke is, I believe, genuine. Now, perhaps one day something will come to light and I will look like a right naive fool for not seeing his scam for what it is. Perhaps David is profiting by millions from his book sales and tours, and laughing at the gullible sods all the way to the bank. But, love him or loathe him... I do get the sense that he has spent the past 30 years working very hard for the liberation of humanity, at least in his own mind. And yes, he really does believe they are shape-shifting reptilians. So how does this literalism affect his work? It's possible that had Ike presented some version of his writing in the form of fiction, he might have become an international best-selling author in a similar vein to Dan Brown and his Da Vinci Code. People could sit around in the office lunchroom openly reading the latest Ike novel without the shame and ridicule I had to endure. Had this been the case, it's likely his work would have been Here Today, Forgot Tomorrow. It would have become a safe story with which to pass the time. Entertainment. It would have lost its dangerous edge. That edge is dangerous, and can no doubt send people spiralling into a conspiracy psychosis, something we'll look at later in the series. But how many people did David Icke's work radicalise in a positive direction, waking them up to the deeper spiritual and geopolitical realities of our world? The aspects of his work we might think of as being mythical doubtlessly play a role in this. Here we run into a contradiction. People involved in geopolitical research are often concerned to be erudite, to not make mistakes. The deck is already stacked against them, and the last thing they want is an association with shape-shifting lizards. The same could be said for elements of the spiritual community. Given this, how do we utilise the mythic? Let's look at an example that got me thinking along these lines.
3: I'm kind of a sappy person, very sentimental, and I remember there there are times when look, I'm bringing the garbage out to the curb at night, and it's as quiet as can be, you can hear a pin drop out there, and I think to myself, what would it be like to be hearing air raid sirens going on, and knowing that any moment my kid could get her limbs blown off, and she'll be sitting there in my arms, and there'll be nothing I can do to comfort or save her and it's not through any fault of hers or any fault of mine, just two regimes don't like each other. Right. Like you can't do that to other like even if you perceive that somebody is your enemy, there are still some things you just can't do to those people. And what the US government, no matter which party's in charge, is planning to do to Iran, is just one of those things. And you can talk about nuclear weapons and do they have them or not, but this readiness for war. This yeah, this is like some awesome video game that I'm enjoying. I could watch on TV on the news. You gotta you gotta say to people that's just not it's not right to cheer for for widows and orphans being created. You know, I mean, be a human being for a change. Don't be Dick Cheney and don't be John Kerry. Don't be all these shape shifting lizards. You know, who, by the way, once in a while, I think maybe there's something right. to that. <laughs> right. Because a normal person right. would not act like
0: this. Right. You've just been listening to historian and economist Tom Woods talking some years ago about the build-up to war with Iran. Tom employed David Icke's shapeshifting reptilians as a metaphor to convey just how wicked politicians who clamour for war are. Just how inhuman and unlike normal compassionate people they are. He goes further and plays on the edge of mixing the mythical with the physical by saying he sometimes really entertains the idea that they are lizard people. Both the metaphor and the mixing are incredibly powerful antidotes to the human tendency for excessive trust. Our willingness to believe warmongering politicians somehow share our values and are telling us the truth when they express their security or humanitarian concerns. The thought of telling lies to bring about the death of millions is so alien to us that in some sense we can only understand by perceiving those doing it as aliens. Literally. Or symbolically. Or both. Perhaps in time this can give way to a more sophisticated view of the psychopathic mindset. Maybe the mythic is an intermediary step. Or maybe we always need myth to some degree to transcend that gap. Whatever the case, it is clearly a powerful tool in facilitating a paradigm shift in perception. The title of this episode, Do Mention the Reptiles, is a play on chapter 2 of David Icke's book, The Biggest Secret. The chapter title is Don't Mention the Reptiles. Icke is referring to the advice he received to leave all mention of shapeshifting lizard people out of his book, obviously for fear it would discredit him and his wider body of work. Indeed. Up until that point, I don't think he'd ever written anything so crazy that he couldn't have come back from it. It's entirely possible David Icke could have transitioned into being an ever more centre-of-the-road geopolitical researcher throughout the noughties. The reptilians, however, were his no-going-back moment. He departed Kansas, never to return. So, like David, I am also suggesting we do mention the reptiles just not in a purely literal way. I am suggesting a need to re-mythologise the geopolitical sphere, and indeed let that mythology come into its full power by having a somewhat porous boundary between it and the physical world. Be shocking! Do mention the reptiles at dinner parties, or whatever mythical concepts work for you. To the extent that we don't do this, mythology arises anyway. Just unconsciously so. It flares up into conspiracy movements where no effort is made to have any awareness of a boundary between the mythic and the physical, or to even acknowledge a mythic realm exists. It all becomes physical. OK, thank you for listening. To take this line of inquiry further, in the next episode, I'll be answering the question, is George W. Bush a shape-shifting reptilian?